We've got two weeks left in the book of Philippians, a series that we have subtitled Gospel Encouragement. This is a book that is chock full of coffee cup verses, well-known verses. And today we're going to be looking at one of those verses, maybe one of the most well-known verses in the whole Bible. Uh, But this is also a book that turns many of the conventions of this world upside down. And so a couple of examples that we get here just quickly. First of all, Paul is imprisoned. He's someone who has lost many freedoms. He's been exposed to significant hardship. He's suffered in many ways. And yet, he cannot stop talking about joy. Looking at him, at the circumstances of his life, all that he has had to endure, he would be the last person we would expect to be full of joy. But he is, unendingly. So much so, he continually calls his readers to come and join him in this blissful reality. What's obvious about Paul is that his life has been radically changed, transformed by something much greater than him. We also see Paul turning the thinking of this world on its head as he says, to die is gain. To die is gain. In dark moments of life, maybe in those moments of despair, maybe we think this. But Paul says this is always true. When we're young, when we're healthy, it's hard to see this. It's hard to feel this reality that to die is gain. But the author of Ecclesiastes instructs people to listen to the experience of their elders who find no pleasure in their, in their old days of age, in their old age. And there's this reality. We preached the book of Ecclesiastes a number of years ago, and, and there's this reality that at the end of one's life, we get this picture of someone as things fall apart. They're just longing for their days to end. And this ties in with this idea to die is gain. But what Paul does throughout this book is he continually circles back to Jesus. We got this picture in chapter 2 of Jesus being this servant king who loves like no other, who sacrifices himself, who possesses power like no other, who is unendingly kind and gentle, who gives of himself for the flourishing of others, who is working for your joy even now. And Paul is going to come hard at us today by referencing the goodness of God. In the midst of all of his challenges, he keeps talking about all these good realities about who God is. Let's read these verses that we're looking at today, and then we'll work through them. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray.
God, thank you for these verses. Thank you for inspiring Paul to write them. Thank you for all of the life experiences that he experienced and walked through, for his time in prison that led to him writing these words. I pray that in the midst of whatever we find ourselves in this morning, that these words would speak to us, would prod us, encourage us, but ultimately that they would cause us to look to Jesus. You are what we need. This morning, tomorrow, when we wake up, when we lay our heads down on our beds every night, Jesus is what we need. And so I pray that our faith in him would be built in these moments together and as we leave here today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so Paul begins this section by affirming his great rejoicing. And if you've been part of this series, it's almost like, here we go again. Paul talking about joy again. He just cannot stop. But this is springing from the fact that the church in Philippi has shown concern for Paul and cared for him in a way that was really meaningful to Paul. The church in Philippi had brought a financial gift to Paul while he was imprisoned. And Paul infers that they have gone to great lengths to consider Paul's situation and then to serve him sacrificially, to serve him in a way that would be meaningful to him. What they have done for Paul has moved him in a profound way. And so this led to his great rejoicing. But what Paul does here is he strikes a really interesting balance. He makes a point to clarify that the Philippians' concern for him affected his joy, played a part, yet their concern for him was not the primary reason for his great rejoicing. Now, Paul isn't ungrateful for their gift, but he's really clear about the origin of his great rejoicing, and it's explicitly connected to a phrase that was repeated in our verses we looked at last week. The phrase, in the Lord. It's popped up multiple times last week. So Paul's great rejoicing is working in concert with the kindness of the church in Philippi. But hear this, it's not dependent on it. It's not dependent on what they've done for him. So what Paul's doing here is he's showing a remarkable amount of sturdiness. Sturdiness that goes beyond human means. And this really is the gospel foundation that we have to lay here. What lies beneath this is Paul understanding who Jesus is and what he has done for him. And then the gifts that are being given to him through the Philippians are expressions of what Jesus has already done. So Jesus laid this foundation. This is the gospel foundation. Jesus loves him perfectly. He knows this. He believes this. And then he's being reminded of this through the gifts of the Philippians. And this is what then, so the in the Lord is crucial here, right? We've got to see this. This is the foundation for his great rejoicing. And again, we see Paul's sturdiness in another statement here. 
He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So how this shows Paul's sturdiness, when people don't show concern for us, we can so easily think the worst of them, right? I can't believe they're not reaching out to me. They're not doing this thing for me. They, they know I'm hurting. They know I'm going through this thing. For a time, Paul was not feeling, experiencing the concern from his friends. But he still assumed the best. He didn't resort to self-pity in those moments. And this is also seen in the fact that he clearly states that he was not in need. He says that explicitly to them. And so all of this is evidence of a rootedness in the gospel. Paul is secure in Jesus' perfect love for him. He is unmoved because he knows, even if they don't love him, Jesus does. And he's put all of his eggs in that basket. That's what he's hoping in, ultimately. Okay, and this then moves us into this next section that I believe directly confronts a reality that is a major struggle for most of us. Probably all of us, but for sure most of us. Paul says this, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Let me read this again. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So let's consider this just for a moment. First of all, contentment is essentially a state of satisfaction. That's what contentment is, a state of satisfaction. Paul is saying that he is able to be satisfied in whatever circumstance he's in. In prison, in sickness, in suffering, in conflict. This is paradoxical. A paradox is a seeming contradiction. What he's doing here is paradoxical. It's really hard for us to compute, to compute how we can be in pain and satisfied. How we can not get what we want and still be content, still be satisfied. That's hard for us. And one of my hopes in this series, one of my prayers through these, the, the weeks that have been leading up to this is that we would be struck by how radical this idea is. And, and not just struck by this, but that we would also be changed by it, by the very thing that has changed Paul. Because in our culture, it's a really stark sight to see someone who is consistently content. It's just rare for us to see this, even in our own lives. But I want to be really careful here as we're talking about this. When I listen to Paul here, I can on one hand idolize him. I can think, I want that. I want to be like Paul. But in that, I can make this about Paul and think that the focus is all on Paul here. But it's not. It's much bigger than just Paul. It's the foundation underneath Paul that leads him in this. On the other hand, I can also slip into despair. I can be overwhelmed by guilt. I look at Paul, and as my kids say, I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. And that can dog me. I feel my failure in this way. I, 
And so I want to be really clear. I don't want you to be motivated by making yourself into something, nor compelled by guilt. It is destructive for us to be motivated by a desire to improve ourselves or to feel overwhelmed by our own failure. So I want to be really clear here. What's behind Paul? And what I want you to hear is grace. Grace is what motivates contentment. And so if, if you feel anything else, if you feel shame, if you feel whatever it might be, it could be a lot of things, the key to contentment is grace. That's what we've got to look at. That's what we've got to hope in. That has to be what motivates us. Okay, so Paul is able to find satisfaction in the tough realities of life. I think it's easier for us to think about those negative realities, negative circumstances. That's how we oftentimes think of this. But this also speaks to the positive scenarios in our lives. When things are good, what do we want? More, right? When things are good, we want more of that good thing. And so even the aspiration for more of a good thing can be indicative of a lack of contentment. One of the ways I was thinking about this this week is uh, with pictures and videos. A lot of us like to take pictures and videos, right? We love to capture life. We want to remember certain life experiences. We want to be able to relive a fun event. We want more of it. The danger in this is we miss out on that moment by trying to compound our fun. I spent a lot of time at the uh, high school basketball tournament this week with Tyler. And, and we could see, like even last night we were at games and a parent of one of the really good players on a team was like doing the whole game through his phone because he wanted to remember this. Like this was a great big opportunity for his son now, don't hear me condemning pictures, videos. We take lots of them in our house, okay? I just want to encourage us to have some awareness to the fact that we're not trying to see, or we're not seeking to create an artificial contentment. Something, make something into more than it really is. Because this can turn really bad. And this made me think of a conversation I've had with an acquaintance who's told me this story a couple of times. He's talked about how his mom has shared with him. He's, he's an adult now, has teenage sons, and um, his mom has shared with him how she looks back to when he was in high school. And that was the golden age. And she says, I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back and have that time when your friends were in the house, when you guys were in the house. And, and in this, she's, she's communicating dissatisfaction, discontent. And he, he wrestles with, how do I work through this with my mom? Like, she's verbalizing to me, like, she doesn't enjoy this. And there's this yearning that she communicates for her circumstances to be something other than they are. 
her yearning is for her circumstances to change. Her yearning's not for Jesus. And this is making her unhappy. Okay, so Paul is stating something really profound here. Contentment is always possible. Contentment is always possible. Think about this. Or think about your life. Where do you think contentment is impossible? Where do you struggle to find contentment in your own life? We all feel it in some regard. What does it look like for you? What Paul is saying here is massive. Contentment is always possible. At some level, this should draw us in. Like we should be enticed in some way. What does he have that we don't? What are we missing out on? Something that's intriguing in all of this is that Paul was not born this way. Paul says this. He says he learned this. So I have no expectation for any of us to have mastered this. But, but are we learning this? Are we growing in contentment? Is our contentment increasing in our life? I have deep concerns for myself and for us. I see how easily I'm tempted to chase after contentment in things that are not Jesus. And I know all of you are just as human as I am. Our culture is predicated on us functioning as consumers. And one of the narratives of our culture is we need stuff. And once we have stuff, we need more of that stuff or different stuff. And in the process of all of this, the thing or the stuff becomes the focal point. That's where our energies are directed. And the Bi- one of the ways the Bible frames this conversation is as gift versus giver. And the reality is, is we tend to put too much focus or emphasis on the gift instead of the giver. But the gift is typically expendable. The gift comes, the gift goes. It's eaten, it breaks, it wears out. Gifts are intended to be enjoyed. For sure, we should enjoy gifts. But more than that, they are intended to drive us to the giver. Gifts are intended to drive us, to point us to the giver. The root of idolatry, which is the worship of something or someone not named Jesus, is a preoccupation with gift over giver. But gifts are given simply to display the goodness and the kindness and the power of the giver. Gifts are given to move us to worship the giver. The issue is we stop short. We just stop at the gift. And and this isn't as though we're just going to sit around and chant Jesus all day. It's not that we don't enjoy things. 
The point is to enjoy things and then let that joy, that enjoyment, drive us back to its source. Who created that thing? Who empowered a human to think of it? Who gave the taste buds to taste it? Who gave the physical gift to this person so that they could accomplish this thing? Who enabled the discipline and the intellect and the money and the health for this thing? James 1.17 answers this question. Every good gift is from above, coming down from the Father. Gifts are given for your enjoyment, but ultimately to drive your worship of the giver. And this is why Paul was so clear to delineate the difference between his contentment occurring because of the gift of the Philippians versus his contentment being in the Lord. He was thankful for the gift. It played a role in his joy, but true joy and contentment is only found in Jesus. The reason Paul has been able to find contentment in all situations in prison, in sickness, through beatings, is because the reason for contentment is not rooted in a circumstances or in a circumstance or anything that can change. It's rooted in an unchanging reality in Jesus. And it's rooted in grace, which is by definition an undeserved gift. So in this scheme, contentment is always possible. This is a challenging word for us. Contentment is always possible. And this is what Paul then drives home. In verse 12, he says, In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. Okay, so Paul speaks of the fact that there's a bit of a secret to finding contentment in any circumstance. And what's clear through what he says is that this secret is revealed in the everyday mundane parts of life, in abundance and in need, in every situation. And so one thing that we can know about this secret is that, is that it's a public secret. Okay? It's a secret that's available to everybody. But what is the secret? This is where we get to our well-known verse. Paul writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the secret. This verse has marked endless coffee cups. Many people recite this as a mantra that has become a cultural maxim in our culture, though not in the way intended. Kids are told on repeat that they can do anything, that they can be anything that they want. Now, I'm not just about squashing kids' dreams, okay? I'm not about discouraging hard work. But the reality is I could never be a sumo wrestler. I could not do it, no matter how hard I tried. I could not be an astronaut simply because I'm freakishly tall, okay? I cannot be anything. I cannot do anything. 
what this has turned into is people love to turn this verse into these first five words. I can do all things. And I've heard many Christians as well misappropriate this verse. This is massively dangerous. So, throughout history, when trying to understand many things, there's been this helpful phrase that people will recite. Context is everything. Context is everything. And that's true for this verse as well. We can't just pluck this one verse out of the Bible and flat apply it to every situation in life. So this is crucial. Paul's writing this statement in reference to how he is able to be content in every situation. That's the context of this verse. He is saying the secret to consistent contentment is found where? Through him. Through who? Through Jesus. Jesus is the key to contentment. In Paul's day, much like our our own, and this comes out in the Greek, the, the original language in the Bible here, there was a strong cultural push towards contentment being found in self-sufficiency. And any Greek reader would be able to draw this out. This sounds like the American dream. Contentment being found in self-sufficiency. But Paul goes no holds barred in saying contentment is not found in self-sufficiency. Contentment is found in Christ's sufficiency. In us being sufficient in and through Jesus. So we have to be explicit. I can do all things through him who strengthens me is not a bumper sticker that we merely slap on any dream that we might have or any situation in life. That's not what Paul is doing here. But what Paul is saying is that in any situation, no matter the circumstances, whether our temptation is for more or for better, we can be content. That we can do that through Christ. It's not the circumstance that provides the contentment. It's Jesus. Satisfaction is offered to us, whether we find ourselves in abundance or in need. Longing for more or not. Suffering or healthy. Contentment is offered to us in and through Jesus. And remember, as it was for Paul, this is learned. So no one has this figured out perfectly. Contentment is learned through our experiences of discontent. That's how we learn contentment, by walking through discontent. You have to learn the things you are hoping in that aren't Jesus will not give you what you are looking for. Whatever your favorite food is, if you would eat that meal after meal after meal, you would get sick of that. I'm confident of it. That meal cannot provide you what Jesus can. 
I see this in professional athletes. Oftentimes, they deal with depression when they retire. They thought their athletic gifts, their sport, their salary would give them what they were looking for. But they realize it can't. It can't sustain. A good grade on a test is quickly forgotten as you now have to get ready for the next test. I enjoy following the Minnesota Vikings. And this is the off-season. And so at this point, they're trying to sign new players. Okay? So I've been watching this from afar. Like, the real rabid fans are like crazy. Like, sign this guy. And they'll sign like this, this great player. And the next hour, the next day, what are they saying? Okay, now they need to sign this guy. Right? Like, it, it's not enough. We've got to move on to the next thing. I, I remember Robert telling this story about the Chicago Cubs as well, right? And, and he talks about how for 108 years they didn't win the World Series, but then they did. And everyone loses their minds. And then he wakes up the next day and he reads in the newspaper or on the internet or whatever it was, and, and they're saying, can they repeat? Can they do it again? Musicians have to put out their next album. You know, it, it's so good, right? Like, this album was so good, everyone's enjoying it, and then, like, everyone's just looking forward to, can they do it again? Like, I, w- I want more of that. Actors, actresses, put out a good movie, and everyone wants the next one. We see this with kids at Christmas, right? They open the present. That's awesome. Discard it. I need the next present, right? More and more and more. Let your discontent shout at you. Jesus is enough. Preach this at yourselves. When you feel dissatisfied, tell yourself over and over, Jesus is enough. This thing is not enough. But Jesus is enough. Contentment is found in believing Jesus is enough. Here's the thing. We need to be preoccupied with Jesus. We are all too often preoccupied with our circumstances. When our circumstances are not what we deem sufficient, which is often, we will focus our efforts on improving our circumstances. We don't even have to think about it. That's just what we naturally do. And I'm encouraging us, rather than putting so much focus on the circumstance and fixing that, preoccupy yourself with Jesus. He is enough. Look at who He is. Remind yourself often of how He has been kind to you. How He has provided for you. How He has loved you. The forms of grace that you have been given as a gift from Him. Talk about these things with one another. Contentment is found in believing Jesus is enough. I saw this quote this week. And I think it speaks to this really well. Contentment makes you adaptable. 
And I saw this quote, it got me thinking about the endless possibilities that flow from a contented heart. My oldest child, Tyler, has a friend named Jonah. Jonah has become a friend to all of our kids. Jonah's easygoing. Jonah is content. He's not asking for more. He's not saying, no, I'm not going to do that thing because he doesn't like it. He just rolls with it. He's content. And it causes our kids to want to be around him, to draw near to him. It makes him likable. Being a content person makes us adaptable, makes us likable. And this then flows out to a life of mission. Contentment is vital to a life of mission. We can go anywhere, including across the world, and do anything and still be content. Still find joy. The activity, the people don't need to dictate our enjoyment. Fatigue doesn't determine our involvement. Contentment. And hear me, this has to come from Jesus. Contentment makes us adaptable. Center Church, Jesus is concerned about your joy, which is directly related to your contentment. And I'm preaching in this way because I want your happiness as well. I want your contentedness. But here's what I know. When we walk out of here today, our minds, our hearts are going to be bombarded with calls for contentment in the gifts of grace rather than the giver of grace. And that's going to look differently for all of us. Whatever that might be for you, you're going to be drawn to. You're going to hear whispers. You're going to hear shouts. Hope in this thing. Change this circumstance. Accomplish this thing. That thing, that circumstance, will disappoint you. And when it does, the sermon you preach to yourself is, Jesus is enough. And turn your affection off of that thing, off of the politics, off of the game, off of the skill, off of the promotion, off of whatever it might be, and turn your gaze to Jesus. He is enough. That's where you find contentment and only in Jesus.